Hello, and welcome to episode 69 of Commonplace, Conversations with Poets and Other People. I'm the founder and host of Commonplace, Rachel Zucker, and I'm thrilled to present this Commonplace reading, which took place on March 30th, 2019, at Passages Bookstore in Portland, Oregon. These amazing poets, all former guests of Commonplace, were in Portland for the Association of Writing Programs Conference, which is the largest yearly conference in North America for writers, publishers, and writing teachers. I've attended AWP myself in various cities at least 10 times. This year, the conference was huge. There were over 15,000 attendees, over 500 events, 2,000 presenters, nearly 800 book fair exhibitors. It was exhausting, exciting, illuminating, and enlivening. In our last episode, episode 68, I shared the extraordinary on-site reading with you, featuring commonplace guests Ross Gay, Gabrielle Calvacaresi, Adam Faulkner, and Sabrina Oramark and I spoke about the state of the podcast. In this episode, you'll hear Yin Yi, T.C. Tolbert, Tommy Pico, Morgan Parker, Erica Meitner, Janine Joseph, and Jericho Brown read from new or newly published work. We're thrilled to have a few copies of Erica Meitner's Holy Moly Carry Me, Morgan Parker's Magical Negro, Tommy Pico's Junk, Janine Joseph's Driving Without a License, and Jericho Brown's The Tradition for Commonplace Book Club members. Many thanks to Boa Editions, Tin House Books, Alice James Books, and Copper Canyon Press for these wonderful books. To find out how to become a Commonplace patron at the book club level or at any level, visit our website, commonpodcast.com. At our website, you can also sign up for our newsletter, which comes out once per episode. You can find extra resources for each episode and check out our merch page that has cool commonplace t-shirts, tote bags, and coffee mugs. We're so grateful to all our patrons for making Commonplace possible. At the end of this episode, we'll play you a few messages from our patrons and listeners about their lives, writing, and how they came across Commonplace. So I'm going to introduce very briefly these writers in the order in which they will read. If you want to know more about any of them, you can find longer bios on commonpodcast.com, or even better, I invite you to listen or re-listen to the episodes in which each of these writers originally appear. Yin Yi is the author of The Year of Blue Water. He is an associate editor at Foundry and an MFA candidate at New York University. I had the great pleasure of being Yin Yi's mentor when he was a fellow at the Asian American Writers Workshop, and Yin Yi interviews me in person and on the phone for episode 50, Inside Commonplace. T.C. Tolbert is the author of Gafiromania. She, he is a nationally certified EMT and in the summer leads wilderness trips for Outward Bound. I spoke with T.C. in Tucson, Arizona, while lying on a couch for episode 51. We spoke about T.C.'s car accident, changing body, and working one's way back toward health. I've been thinking a lot about this episode recently, having spent a lot of time in bed, trying to work myself slowly back to health. Tommy Teebs Pico is the author of IRL, Nature Poem, Junk, and Feed 
Originally from the Vallejas Indian Reservation of the Kumeyaay Nation, he now splits his time between Los Angeles and Brooklyn. He co-curates the reading series Poets with Attitude with Morgan Parker at the Ace Hotel. I spoke with Tommy at NYU about many things, including epic cycles and long poems, and his podcast, Food for Thought, in episode 53. Morgan Parker is the author, most recently, of the poetry collection Magical Negro and a YA novel, Who Put This Song On? Parker is the creator and host of Reparations Live at the Ace Hotel, co-curator with Tommy Pico of PWA, and with Angel Nafis, she is the Other Black Girl Collective. She lives in Los Angeles. I recorded episode 23 with Morgan in front of a live audience at the Red Room at the KGB Bar. We had a raucous good time talking about poetry, therapy, husbands, and much more. Erica Meitner was born and raised in Queens and Long Island, New York. Erica is the author of five books of poems, most recently, Holy Moly, Carry Me. Erica is currently an associate professor of English and the director of the MFA program in creative writing and the undergraduate creative writing program at Virginia Tech. Erica and I recorded episode six at my kitchen table. We talk about documentary poetics, Walmart, Cleveland, and much more. Janine Joseph was born in the Philippines. She immigrated to the United States at the age of eight and lived undocumented for 15 years. She is the author of Driving Without a License. She is an assistant professor of creative writing at Oklahoma State University. I spoke with Janine, along with Javier Zamora and Marcelo Hernandez Castillo, for episode 22 about their writing and about their organization, UndocuPoets, that helps support undocumented poets, and about each of their work and experiences. Last but not least, Jericho Brown is the author of Please, the New Testament, and most recently, The Tradition. He is an associate professor and the director of the creative writing program at Emory University and poetry editor at The Believer. For episode 16, I spoke with Jericho at the restaurant of a fancy hotel on the Lower East Side, where Jericho somehow managed to eat an enormous hamburger while brilliantly expounding on writing about family, queerness, poems as small, complete things, and so much more. After Yin Yi, TC, Tommy, Morgan, Erica, Janine, and Jericho read, stay tuned for some messages from listeners and patrons. Okay, here's Yin Yi. Okay, so I'm holding this up, but I'm projecting for all of you. Sorry for anyone who's listening to this later if this is too loud. Uh, so, hi, I'm Yin Yi. Um, my latest book, my only book, is The Year of Blue Water that came out on Tuesday. Great timing, Yale. Um, I just want to thank Passages and Christine and Rachel for wonderful coordination behind the scenes. Very well put together emails. Thank you. Um, and I just want to say that Rachel is just an amazing... Uh, sh so we know each other because she was my mentor when I was a fellow at Asian American Writers Workshop. I asked for her because I heard that she was a great teacher. And I wanted to be paired with someone who I felt could... Um, mentor me through the journey of 
actually bringing this manuscript that I had been working on into the world. And she totally did, and she fed me, which is um, a language that I understand very well. <laughs> so, so thank you, Rachel, and thank you, everyone, for being here and for making this the, like, poetry club, because it feels like it. <laughs> so my book is a book of prose poems, and I'm just going to read two. Uh, and they're not titled, so um, you're just going to hear me pause. You're going to hear the silence. Louise Glick is surprised by her own surprise. I'm surprised to be delighted, walking down the street, having just made a new friend at a coffee shop that secretly has ramen for breakfast, which has been my dream for a very long time. Ramen because, as children, my cousins and I would take a little money from our parents for the street stalls and order beef stew or ground pork or soupless noodles, all of which were spiced to the point where we'd have to order bowls of soup just to soothe our mouths. I loved black vinegar, which I mixed into my noodles to settle the bite of chili with a bite of sourness. Ramen because we would walk across the concrete streets, and once I thought I had a rock in my sandal, well, actually it was the very tip of a nail that had lodged in my soul, which I did not discover until home. Ramen for the hot summer days before they were too hot, against the dusty sewage and the farmers who my grandmother visited for groceries. Her hair still black. Ramen, which I ate with my dad every lunch or night because he didn't have time to cook, didn't have time to be home. Ramen for the days when I was very lonely, having no one to talk to, not knowing that I wanted to talk. Ramen, which comforted me next to the books that also comforted me. Ramen that made me a friend this morning over a talk at breakfast and how to find words that we don't know how to say in English. And this is my last poem. It's good. It's five minutes. <laughs> you tell me that the old you is dead. I'm also not who I used to be. The revolution is emotional. I found a reason to not fear death. I found more reasons to live, reasons to change what is living inside me and around me. The revolution is that I care about my own safety, that I believe my life is valuable and worth pursuing. As in, I am worth the work of transformations. As in, I do not fear how I will emerge from myself or how many times. Thanks. My name is T.C. Tolbert, and I'm now yelling into the microphone as well, and I'm reading new work. My birth name is Melissa, and since the last AWP I attended three years ago when I had a cab accident and displaced some ribs and had a surprising gender change as a, as a result of that, um, it's true, my, my hips truly returned, my mother's body uh, emerged in my body. Um, and, and so it, it's become important for me to address Melissa. So that's what I'll read two pieces. Um, and I'll begin with, with one that's dedicated to my mother who, um, when I was growing up, said, I wish you'd never been born. 
a couple of times. And um, later, long after I started to transition and, and, and she had threatened to commit suicide because of that, she showed up and she was being really cool. Um, and it was weird. And, uh, <laughs> and I was like, Hey, what's, you know, I just asked her, I said, Hey, you, you seem chill. And I should add, I grew up in Tennessee, Pentecostal. And she said, you know, all your life, I was praying for God to change you. And I realized I was praying the wrong prayer. Um, what I should have been praying is for God to change me. And so this is um, a poem in which I've taken that phrase, I wish you'd never been born, and expanded it or opened, found space for both of us there. Dear Melissa, I wish you, my mother once told me, mother of my childhood, even though water is water weary. What is prayer if not quiet who has made me? What hands you become when you touch? Who laid down on whose body? Whose face and whose shoulders worth shaking? What will I not hear when I look back at you? Who is not the mother of a daughter? Who is not the mother of a man? We are right to be afraid of our bodies. Wind is carried by what is upright and still moves what has, had, been buried deep enough in the ground to be called roots. When will this be the world where you stop? Whatever broke into you was torn by the contact. A face wears a face it can see. What is alive is unrecognizable. Need it be? Who is my mother, mother? No one. Who hasn't killed herself by growing into someone? I'm sorry you have never been born. And this is my last poem. <laughs> in someone else's home, 2018, February 8th. You are sitting in front of a considerable yellow mirror. Carved into the frame of the mirror are flowers, the leaves of which, were they solo, could be mistaken for thumbnails lined up at a salon, waiting for the arrival of the hands to which they should be attached. There are fish underwater above you, trying to tell the night what is coming. One fish in particular has eyelashes and a body covered in lines, much like a topographical map. You remember there are tiny brooms all over your own skin that, even if you say stop, will not stop. You've said stop so many times before to your own body, whatever that is, and the lines being drawn upon it. Now that testosterone has occluded estrogen, there must be fewer bodies like yours or more, it's hard to say. You often mistake reflection for its lyrical sibling, and it hurts to see anything this late. The auburn closet to your right was built after the room was finished. Closet isn't exactly the right word, but neither is metal bar with hangers inside and a regular collection of shelves. You've always been drawn to containers, repositories of any kind, strung with a simple strip of cloth. Perhaps this is why you cannot call Melissa or even Missy your dead name. You understand the problems with birth name, and still you've spent so much time bargaining to believe every name you've ever been called points at least partially to a body alive 
that you are willing to love today. The mirror only returns parts of what holds you to yourself, no matter the angle, and in this way, it is just like language, just like every story about transition with which you've been harassed. Faced with the haunting of our innumerable, we become severing. Your prayer was severed, like the night to which you are repeatedly hope harnessed and into which soon enough you will pass. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Hi, everybody. I'm Tommy Teebs Pico. Uh, my latest book is called Feed. It's out in November. The last one was called Junk. Are they on sale here or no? I forget. Okay. So I don't have a book to read from because I forgot everything. Um, <laughs> so I'm going to read a little bit from my book, Junk. <clears throat> Came out last year. Uh, uh, I'm an indigenous American poet, a screenwriter. Um, I could suck the color out of a marble. Kind of a whore. I'm single. <laughs> um, I just wanted to give you something, because I feel like oftentimes, in my experience anyway, bookstore readings can be like a little awkward because it's a little bit too well lit and a little too sober. Um, and people sometimes feel like, yeah, well, there's some wine in the back. You can, uh, I had a little bit. Um, but I just wanted to encourage you to react if you feel that you can or you want to. So this is from Junk. Uh, the patron saint of this book is Janet Jackson. Um, so I'm going to read a little excerpt that's kind of about Janet, but it's really about me, honestly. <laughs> Control by Janet Jackson is one of the greatest songs in the nation. Warm hearts sparkle in the colonial afternoon. Control is a reaction to something smacking that cracks the future with no precedent. We call this a paradigm shift. This, we say we're totally blindsided. Janet wants to take control from her parents, from the loss of a love, control of the narrative. Janet wants the black cat in boxy military garb. Janet wants to show you her midriff and introduce J-Lo to the general public in a few albums. Shock is a kind of collision, a booming confusion. The shudder and the shot are almost indistinguishable. Shock has its electric correlate, but is also itself by what surrounds the event. A quiet dinner party versus sweaty racing thoughts? And what do you make of it? My friend said he found out his crush graduated college in 2014 and hates himself. And I'm like, wait, wait until you're my age thinking, I totally still look like I'm in my 20s. And then it turns out the dude I was making out with was born the year Janet the album came out. What the literal fudge. An hour ago, you were singing That's the Way Love Goes at karaoke. In my defense, taller dudes always look older than me. How to negotiate control and the lack of control when your slap hand gets itchy. Okay, whenever anybody dumps you, just think of them as if a gif of a white dude wilding out to Wu-Tang in a cardigan and then suddenly falling into the Grand Canyon. Dating is all the way dumb. <laughs> I don't know what, if any of this, 
will reach your peepers. But I want to ask you this, and I'm guilty of making people wade through some bullshit before getting to my point. What do you turn to when breath dashes from your body like it's on the lamb? Cindy Crawford says lighting is everything. Take a selfie from the sun-blown window. Even supermodels say lighting. It's comforting. But there's also value in exposing your engine. Hashtag bad selfie. Archaic, but also so fresh. Self-expression. Trust is a thing that guides you through a feed. The voice like a handshake. I'm in front of you. There's paper and a trade-off. This is ancient, like pixel drift. What's under the hood of irritation? We call complication a knot, a knotted life that doesn't get to get undone. Who here has a clear linear rope? Denial, you gotta love your knots. You gotta shout them out, curate if need be. Janet turns her knots into songs. Sonic beauty, though fuck beauty TBH, not is the response. A manager is like a politician, right? Not the minutia, but the orchestration, the dark forest. It's hard not to inhale, cause the cave is where you turn to when you've no other recourse. This isn't a discussion. This isn't a mandate, LOL, mandate. <laughs> this isn't an answer. This is a lineage. show, Keith Haring, Rihanna, how do you draw breath in and down, heel to crown? Janet says, I'm in control, and then ends, don't make me lose it, as if she knows what's to come. The battle of control is learning to make and giving it up. Thank you. I was like, hello. Hello. <laughs> What's up? I'm really glad we did that because like, I was kind of pissed that I had to go after Tommy. We do a lot of events together and I'm like, I'll go first. And I don't like going first, but like, I'm the nerd in this situation. And if I come after that, I'm like, I also am single. But <laughs> do you guys want to know about iambic pentameter? Like, <laughs> and sadness? Do you want to know how to find a therapist? Like, I'm here. So, a little bit uncool, but you know, doing my thing. Um, I'm just gonna read, I think, three short joints. Yeah, I'm like, I'm not gonna stand in front of this because it's taller than me. Oh, by the way, I'm Morgan Parker. I am the author of three collections of poetry. Most recently, Magical Negro, which I'm holding right now. Before that, it was There Are More Beautiful Things Than Beyonce. And before that, it was a book called Other People's Comfort Keeps Me Up at Night. <laughs> Favor a long title. Uh, I have a young adult novel coming out in September. It's called Who Put This Song On? Uh, hopefully, soon I'll be reading it at like a skate park near you. <laughs> it's like trying to find the emo teens. Uh, <laughs> So, you know, wherever they are, that's where I'll be, and you'll find me there. <laughs> the High Priestess of Soul's Sunday morning visit to the Wall of Respect. The Impressionism wing strikes me as too dainty for my mood. 
except for one oil painting by Gustave Caibat, calf's head and ox tongue, which is described in the wall text as visually unpleasant. A bust of an African woman bums me out. This year, I cried at everyone's kitchen table. I spit on the street and was late on purpose and stepped in glass and my dog died and I saw minuses over and over. I'll figure it out. I let a man walk away and then another one. It has taken me exactly this long to realize I could have done something else. I'm being repetitive now, but do you ever hate yourself? <laughs> I know. Um, <laughs> yeah, I literally like, don't care about anything, clearly. Like, <laughs> um, this poem, when I started writing this book, I was like working on a series of uh, magical Negro poems, kind of exploring like who my magical Negroes are instead of, you know, who white people tell me are magic, uh, including myself. So at some point I was like, oh, I guess I have to figure out like who's magical Negro number one. You know, there's like magical Negro number 607 or whatever. So um, yeah, magical Negro number one, Jesus Christ. <laughs> it's truly the best I could come up with. They make his eyes that color so he can seduce you. Literally, every white boyfriend tender until they're not. Y'all know that nigger was a nigger. Y'all know those whores were whores. Sometimes I go to the sink for water and I come back with a jar full of wine. Every second I breathe, I forgive. All right, this is the last one in my book. You'll see why when I get to the last line. It was like, well, guess this is the last one in my book. The title comes from a line in Gertrude Stein's Three Lives, the, the larger excerpt of which is the epigraph to the whole book. It was summer now, and the colored people came out into the sunshine. They descend from the boat two by two. The gap in Angela Davis's teeth speaks to the gap in James Baldwin's teeth. The gap in James Baldwin's teeth speaks to the gap in Malcolm X's teeth. The gap in Malcolm X's teeth speaks to the gap in Malcolm X's teeth. <laughs> the gap in Condoleezza Rice's teeth doesn't speak. Martin Luther King Jr. Boulevard kisses the Band-Aid on Nellie's cheek. <laughs> Frederick Douglass's side part kisses Nikki Giovanni's thug life tattoo. The choir is led by Whoopi Goldberg's eyebrows. R.I.P. <laughs> That's not in the book. I just like, every time I say that, I want to like pour some out. Like, <laughs> the choir is led by Will Smith's flat top. The choir loses its way. The choir never returns home. The choir sings funeral instead of wedding. Sings funeral instead of allegedly sings funeral instead of help, sings black instead of grace, sings black as knucklebone, mercy, June bug, sea air. It is time for war. Thanks. Hi. 
Hi. Hi. I'm Erica Meitner. I'm the author of five books of poems. My most recent book is Holy Moly, Carry Me. Um, before I start reading, I just want to take a minute to embarrass Rachel because she's a really old friend of mine. Um, for you just embarrass me. How old am I? <laughs> really old. We're both. <laughs> we're, bo <laughs> we're both perimenopausal age. I'll read a poem about that second. That's why I'm in a tank top. <laughs> but I want to just embarrass her for saying that. This is not just a reading. I feel like Commonplace is a community, too. Um, and I feel like she's made a really beautiful thing. So I just want to say that. And now I'm going to read a basketball poem. Are there any basketball fans? It's a LeBron poem. The only thing you need to know, and I apologize, I sound like Patty and Velma on The Simpsons because it's like the fourth day of AWP, you know? So I sound like I've been like chain smoking and drinking whiskey. I might have, I don't know. Um, so Stephen Dunn, who's a really old Pulitzer Prize winning poet, makes a cameo in here. That's all you need to know. Too strong is what the announcer dubs Steph Curry's flub shot that bounces diagonally off the backboard. This is game seven of the NBA Finals, and Cleveland goes on to defeat the Golden State Warriors, but we don't know this yet because we're still watching the game jammed into an alcove where it's live streaming from someone's laptop onto a wall at an artist colony since a surprising number of writers and composers and painters are basketball fans. So when the sportscaster reels out descriptions of plays, Nate the jazz critic says, someone should write a poem called Too Strong. And Stephen Dunn isn't interested, though he's sitting behind me also rooting for the Cavs, saying things like, my goodness, and he's the best closer for his size. You have to give context in your poem, mansplains Nate. <laughs> who points out that too strong is a hyper-masculine way of saying Curry basically just fucked up the shot. It's important to note here that Cleveland hasn't won a championship in any sport since 1964. That's a 52-year curse, in case you're anti-math. I am well-versed in the sadness of Cleveland, skies hanging like lead most of the year, husks of buildings, smokestacks pumping raw flame over downtown. My husband grew up in the sadness of Cleveland, and we return there every Christmas to more unemployment, more foreclosure, more poverty, more shitty weather. When LeBron left Northeast Ohio, my husband actually burned his replica jersey in the yard. <laughs> Wouldn't mention his name for three long years of anger and mourning. He uses Cleveland sports teams to teach our sons about failure and perseverance <laughs> with a heavy emphasis on the failure. <laughs> but here's LeBron on screen lugging his city's championship dreams like a bag of rocks. Forget Tamir Rice, age 12, gunned down by police for being black, for playing with a toy gun in a park, left to bleed out on a sidewalk. Forget that Cleveland is the poorest city in America other than Detroit. LeBron stuffed this game with thunderous dunks, fadeaway jumpers, and block shots, towing his teammates along in his ferocious wake. 
And when LeBron goes down in the final minute of the game, writhes on the court in pain after landing on his wrist, we all want him to get up. Even the artists rooting for Golden State. Get up, LeBron. Nothing comes easy to Cleveland. The next morning's paper sports a photo of LeBron embracing power forward Kevin Love. Next to headlines about Venezuelan food riots, triple digit temperatures in the West, vigils for victims of the Orlando massacre, and the Colorado woman who fought off a mountain lion attacking her five-year-old son, literally reached into the animal's mouth and wrested his head from its jaws. Too strong. In the belly of fear, and rust and shame, there is no such thing. To pry open something with your bare hands, look into the gaping maw of the beast that eats your sons. The lion, the bullets, the streets, racist cops, heroin, despair, whatever is most predatory, and say enough, we will triumph, motherfuckers. At the game's end, LeBron and the Cavs coach Tyron Lue sobbed without shame. I've always been tough and never cried, Lou said. And LeBron at the post-game mic, wearing a cut-down net like a necklace, says, I came back to bring a championship to our city, to a place we've never been. We've got to get back to Cleveland. We're going home. I'm reading one more. Sorry, my poems are like long. I don't have short poems. I just don't, I don't write them. Where's Jericho? Is he in here? Jericho. So Jericho is, in 20 years in the business, Jericho's the only editor who's helped me line, he called me while he was sick in bed and helped me line edit this poem. So I'm going to read it for him. It's so rare to have editors who do that, really. Um, so this is a poem about every single thing in my family history. One of the things that happens when you write a book is some poems trail behind and come out later. And this is one of them. And so um, a lot of my book is about gun culture, gun violence, living in Appalachia. But part of it is about secondary infertility and my family's history as um, I'm 3G. My grandparents were Holocaust survivors. My mother was a refugee. So that comes up in here, too. And the CVS. <laughs> my list of true facts. I am 43, and I just drove to the CVS at 9.30 PM on a Sunday to buy a store brand pregnancy test. Two sticks in a box rung up by a clerk who looked like the human embodiment of a Ken doll with his quaffed blonde hair and red smock. Even though I wish there was a tired older woman at the register this one time. Even though I am sure I am not pregnant, this missing my period is almost definitely another trick of perimenopause, along with the inexplicable rage at all humans, an insane sex drive, and the blood that when it comes overwhelms everything. And with two sons already, what would I do with a baby now? Even though I spent four long years trying to have another, I am done have given away all the small clothes and plastic devices that make noise. Just looking at toddlers leaves me exhausted. <laughs> this would be a particularly cruel trick of nature. The CVS was empty. There was no one in cosmetics or any aisle, including family planning, which is mostly lube and condoms. I didn't know Naturalam was a thing, real skin-to-skin -skin intimacy. There's just one small half of one shelf of pregnancy tests, and some say no yes in case you don't think you can read blue or pink lines appearing in a circle. 
My grandmother was a nurse midwife during the war in the Susnevik ghetto. Her brother, 10 years younger, a change of life child, she called him, when she told me finally she had a brother. When the archivist came around for her testimony, years after her brother was gassed alongside her mother in Auschwitz, years after my grandmother euthanized her own daughter, whom I was named for because the SS were tossing babies from the windows of cattle cars. The name for a baby born to an older mother past 40, change of life child. My grandmother took her silence and grief with her to a new country. I peed on so many sticks over so many years, gave myself scores of injections, took pills, went under anesthesia and knives, since there's an unspoken mandate to procreate when all your people, your family, were actually slaughtered. I gave one son my grandmother's brother's name, and the other was called King My Son by his birth mother on the page of notes we got that she filled out before she gave him up. And it took me an hour of staring at the form before I realized it was my son. She was claiming him before she let him go. And I think the morning will bring nothing, just one blue line. But right now, it is still night. And I am sitting in my car under the parking lot lights, which are bright and static like me. And beyond them, there's the clerk in the red smock locking the doors. Hi, everybody. My name is Janine Joseph. Uh, I only have one book. It's called Driving Without a License. Um, I immigrated from the Philippines in 1991 and then um, had lived undocumented for 15 years. So uh, that heavily informs this collection. I'm going to read just three short poems. Uh, any fans of the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles? <laughs> yes. This is called uh, Chain Migration. He wanted nothing more than to punch me out of his room for sneaking in and rifling the toy box, but didn't. Not a sway out of him because he felt sorry I didn't have any friends. Then he took our mom's bobby pins in his hands and bent them back into anchors, small black bobby hooks for turtle fishing, he said, and tossed Donatello and Michelangelo from the top bunk while I tackled makeshift mon monofilament through the eyes of the turtle hooks. How long did it take me to snag Leonardo? How long was I almost capsizing the bunk boat? He was so good at sinking his line, at aiming just right, so every cast was a ninja star into their turtle backs. It was merely hardwood water between them and me. And when he unreeled me over the rail by my belt loops, he whispered, get set, go. About three fourths of the way into this book, I was uh, in a really bad car accident and then totally, uh, uh, like, totally lost my memory. Um, and so I have a poem in here called Wreck and it's, uh, it's in the hustle form. Wreck, Janine, your head might have hit something in the car. Come to and quickly. Opening your eyes might take hours. Janine, come to. When you undress and see the bruises, you'll torque your head again into the dash. 
But since you'll forget in the shower, Janine, come to. When you sleep, I know it feels like your brain might be coasting out the window. I know it's an unfathomable horsepower, Janine. Come to. And your chest squeezes you when you breathe or think. When you breathe or think, it's okay that you forget who you are, Janine. Come to. The doctor says, touch your nose, count back from three, and repeat after me. Reel that sense back up your spinal tower. Janine, come to. When bent, bend. When pricked and injected with contrast, bite down on the scent in your mouth like skunk sour. Janine, come to. Know if you take too long, you'll lie wondering who said they'd love to hang by the neck on the family tree, your mother. Janine, come to. Or worse, think what else they might find in your body scanned blue and red on a screen while you lie docked, Janine. Come now, come to. And this last poem I'm reading really for Rachel because in the episode, um, in the commonplace episode um, with the Undocu poets, she had asked um, what we were working on. And at that time I said, I have all these plans for poems, but there was something that had recently happened to me that kind of really disrupted for a time my ability to write poems. Uh, all you really need to know is that Sometimes all I want to do is like go outside in the dark and look at the stars and then a drunk man follows me out and has some words and ideas about who I am and my people and has words for me. So I talk about that briefly. <laughs> yeah. So I ended up writing this mutant sonnet. So it's like a Shakespearean and a Petrarchan and it's also American sentences. And uh, there are two collective nouns for rats. Mischief and colony. So I mentioned those here. And thank you all for listening. This is called American Sentences. I went first into the darkness to see what stars in this landlocked state look like from an Adirondack incline. A goblet of whatever wine stalked alongside, then its tumbler, following to aid my eye in the eyeing of the spectacle. He had the goggles and so beheld at his red dirt's edge his pointer finger. Each constellation's limit alighted with another's as he slurred. The lights in his assembling twisted whale, crow, queen, even the crane to rat, to rat, to rat, to rat. Mischief above and colony below. As you would know, he to me turned. The screen door rasped behind us, so I made to move and moved once more, once more into view. The other is emptied from the kitchen and, under the decorative illumination of the porch, made clear conversation. All of us now, but none to vouch as he angled. I know your homelands run with them into my remembering ear. Was it overrun with or was it ruined with? My memory has clotted the ire. Who's to say now if it was get out of this country or get the fuck out of this country that he hitched an octave higher that no one heard? Thank you. Hi. Hi. How you doing? Okay. 
you know, I got this from the women's section at H&M, and I finally know that this is really just about being able to go. <laughs> it's so you're hot, you don't have to be as hot. It's so funny. I have to remember to talk in this thing, right? So I'm just happy about that. I wouldn't have wanted it if I know Clem was going to be here. I have five minutes. Y'all playing. Stop playing. Um, the card tables. Stop playing. You remember the card tables, slick stick figures like men with low cut fades, short but standing straight because we bent them into weak display. What didn't we want? What wouldn't we claim? How perfectly each surface was made for throwing or dropping or slamming a necessary portion of our pay. And how could any one of us get by with one of them in the way? Didn't that bare square ask to be played on, beaten in the head, then folded, then put away? All so we could call ourselves safe now that there was more room, a little more space. Dark, I am sick of your sadness, Jericho Brown, your blackness, your books, sick of you laying me down so I forget how sick I am. I'm sick of your good looks, your debates, your concern, your determination to keep your blood pump, the little money you earn. I'm sick of you saying no when yes is as easy as a young man, bored with you saying yes to every request, though you're as tired as anyone else, yet consumed with a single diagnosis of health. I'm sick of your hurting. I see that you're blue. You may be ugly, but that ain't new. Everyone you know is just as cracked. Everyone you love is as dark or at least as black. Duplex. Don't accuse me of sleeping with your man when I didn't know you had a man. Back when I didn't know you had a man, the moon glowed above the city's blackout. I walked home by moonlight through the blackout. I was too young to be reasonable. He was so young so unreasonable. He dipped weed in embalming fluid. He'd dip our weed in embalming fluid. We'd make love on trains and in dressing rooms. Love in the subway. Love in mall restrooms. A boar at home he transformed in the city. What's yours at home is a wolf in my city. You can't accuse me of sleeping with a man. Thighs and ass. Where I am my thickest, I grew myself by squat and lunge, and all the time I sweated, I did not think of being divided or entered, though, yes, I knew meat would lure men, and flesh properly placed will lead one to think he can, when he runs from what sniffs to kill us, mount my back, trusting I may carry him at a good speed for a long distance, and to believe, believe that when he hungers, I am able to leap high. Snatch the fruit of the tree we pause to hide behind and feed, feed him. This is the last poem. My name is Jericho Brown. I, um, I have a book called The Tradition. This is my most recent book. I'll show it to you. It's pretty. So don't say you didn't know. Now look. 
No, I'm serious because, you know, I really appreciate, I like it when we read in bookstores because, you know, they make our books available. If this book is not available, I hope the people who can't make it available in this bookstore do. And I hope that y'all will buy it if it is available today. But I really do hope that you go back to your hometowns and that you tell your independent bookseller there that they should carry this book and all of these books that we've heard from tonight. Can you do that? Can y'all do that? Are you willing? Are you? The people in the middle are not willing. What about on the left? Because the people in the middle don't have to be willing. We'll push them. We'll just squeeze them to death till they die. Do the people? Uh, everybody on this side was willing. Y'all are something about this side. Y'all are cooler than that. These people are. Y'all are particularly hot. Y'all are, y'all are not. Are y'all willing? Yeah. Are y'all willing? Y'all, y'all are like, girl, I go to Barnes & Noble. What are you talking about? <laughs> I'm, willing, I'm willing to order your book at the Barnes & Noble I go to. Okay. Um, that's good. As long as you get it. You know what I'm saying? All right. Um, of my fury. I love a man I know could die and not by way of illness and not by his own hand but because of the color of that hand and all his flawless skin. One joy in it is understanding he can hurt me, but won't. I thought by now I'd be unhappy, unconscious, next to the same lover so many nights in a row. He readies for bed on the other side of my fury, but first I make a braid of us. I don't sleep until I get what I want. So much love to Yin Yi, T.C. Tolbert, Tommy Pico, Morgan Parker, Erica Meitner, Janine Joseph, and Jericho Brown for these wonderful readings. Thank you to Passages Bookstore for hosting us in their warm and wonderful space. Thank you to the audience who were present at both our AWP events and to those of you who called in and left us messages. I'd love to share some of those with you now. We might play more of them at the end of future episodes, so if you didn't get a chance to call in but would like to at a future date, please don't be shy. You can find the number on commonpodcast.com. It's 347-762-3405. This is Logan from Madison, Wisconsin. The Mueller report came out a couple of hours ago, but I am taking a news break to call and say thank you. I found Commonplace a week after I had finished 18 months of incarceration, and that's where I discovered poems. Prison libraries, like institutions that cage them, are skewed and strange and baroque things, filled with human nature. The library I had had about ten books of poems, and four of them were by E.E. E. Cummings. Nevertheless, I was hooked. I read, transfixed, and I wrote a lot of bad poems, too. But still, that helped. After my release, I thought I should leave verse behind. But I dipped my toe in the first poetry podcast I could find, and Rachel had confected a space of openness, genuine interest, artistic yet organic, unafraid to be self-doubting, with a whole spectrum of guests. It was surging with a voltaic, contagious kind of fascination. It was shelter, and that matters. It's been over a year, 
And still, sometimes my head feels like a centrifuge that's turned on to high. But the world is big and full of poetry. So thank you, Commonplace, for being, at least for me, the right thing at the right time. Hi, Commonplace Podcast. My name is Melissa Smith. I am in Charlotte, North Carolina. I'm a high school English teacher, and I started the hashtag Teach Living Poets. And that's the reason why I love Commonplace so much is because I've listened to almost every episode now. And whether it's a poet that I was already familiar with, I love that I get to know the poet on a deeper level through the conversation that y'all have. And then for the episodes of the poets that I'm not familiar with, I love that I get to learn about a new poet. So every episode is just such a joy, and it's really, truly helped me to be a better teacher. So thank you so much, Commonplace. Hello, this is Mickey Blankish, and I'm calling from St. Cloud, Minnesota. And I found out about Commonplace just a few months ago from a friend. I do love the, you know, the tangents that the conversations take, and I think that's a really valuable part of really getting an essence of how poetry relates to everything. And um, I wouldn't want to see you change any of that. I just really appreciate what you do. So thank you very much. Bye-bye. Hi, my name is Holly Renspalding. I'm calling from Williamsburg, Massachusetts. And I started listening to Commonplace maybe a month or two ago. Um, I've listened to perhaps six or seven episodes. What interests me overall, what they all have in common is this access to a kind of candid conversation that roams and rambles and um, explores things that are way more interesting to me than the usual um, poetry biz conversation or a conversation that's strictly about craft. I guess I want to share maybe my favorite episode so far, which was the conversation with Sarah Gambito. And I had recently purchased her book, so I was familiar with the poems, but I think what really um, has stuck with me and that is the conversation about non-traditional teaching practices and um, some of the creative things that both Rachel and Sarah are doing in the classroom to open up the conversation and open up the process and open up an inquiry into what we're doing or what we could do and how we're going about it. We have lives beyond the page. We have interests and ideas and um, that includes talking about food, talking about plants, talking about ancient wisdom. I guess I resonate with this idea of wanting to have an interesting conversation or in this case, listen in on an interesting conversation. I think that's unfortunately a little bit hard to come by. People people struggle to be as present in daily life as I think you're able to be in these interviews. Hello, this is Molly Peacock calling from Toronto just with a comment that these conversations are both lyric and epic and always worth it. Thank you, Rachel Zucker, and thank you, Commonplace. Thank you to Boa Editions, Tin House Books, Alice James Books, and Copper Canyon Press for donating books for this episode. 
and to the generous presses who help keep our patrons in fabulous books. Many thanks to the amazing Commonplace team, Nicholas Fuenzalita, Doreen Wang, Becca de Gregorio, and especially Christine LaRusso, who helped organize and run all of our AWP activities. Thank you to Daniel Schiffman, our advisor in all things. The music you're listening to was written and performed by Moses Zucker-Gorin. Thank you, thank you to all our patrons and to you, listener. Thank you for listening. Take care.